Proverbs 17, verse 3. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Holy Father, we approach You this morning seeking a life change. Lord, that's the kind of thing that we as Christians pray all the time. Change us, mold us, make us, use us, mold us after Your will. All these things that is so easy to say until we realize what that looks like. And Lord, I pray that even as we attempt to recognize what that shaping, molding, refining process is like this morning, that we will not be discouraged but encouraged that we will see Your perfect plan in this, even as it relates to our own suffering. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that You'll just give us open hearts. And Father, speak Your Word through Jesus Christ into us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week, we talked about the honor of humility. And that God uses our most humble circumstances, even humiliating circumstances, God will use with the intent of coming honor. That the more we are humbled, the more honor God can entrust to us. And it's absolutely true. This week is similar, but a bit more uncomfortable, to be honest. Kind of like working out. Going to the gym. I'm on a new workout regimen at the gym, weighing now more than I ever have in my entire life. (laughs) D'Angelo doesn't think it's going to last. I'm out to prove him wrong. And I'm learning something here that I didn't realize the last time I really had a a, a hard push to be at the gym was in my mid-30s. Now in my mid-40s, I'm realizing it's a lot harder. (laughs) It's more difficult to take off a few pounds now than it was then. Then it seems like it just fell off. Now, I, I kid you not, I went to the gym. I've been going for about a week and a half now. I have gained weight since then. And trust me, it's not muscle mass. <laughs> I've learned a few things. Pop-tarts don't come off so easily at this age. Which is really disappointing because I enjoy them more at this age than I ever did. But here's the thing I do know about working out. And perhaps you do as well. When it's painful, if you can push just a little bit more, the benefit is greater. You know, if you're on the elliptical and you're going, if, if, if you're just spent and you're done, but you can go five more minutes, the benefit's greater. If you can push through that and, and get on to just a little bit more, an extra five minutes even, ten minutes of working out, even though you just it's the last thing on earth you want to do, the benefit is better for you physically. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So at the end of a long sermon, if you can just go five more minutes. (laughs) Spiritual discipline. Staying with the pain. Walking it out just a little further. Being willing to suffer just one more day, one more week, one more month. Because the benefit is far greater. 
Paul says in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we've talked about this verse before. It's not just work out your salvation. It's work out in your salvation. The emphasis, what Paul is saying, is not work out, figure out how you get saved by being afraid. No, it's work out in it. Discipline yourself in your salvation. You are a saved people if you've given your life to Jesus. Therefore, work it out. Walk it out. Run it out. Discipline yourself. Lift the weights of life. Exercise your faith. That's what Paul is saying. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So this morning we're going to work out in our salvation a little bit. We're going to try to push a little harder and a little further to stay with it just a little longer. Now the Bible repeats this truth, Proverbs 17, verse 7, many times. That God searches out and tests the heart of man. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. This is a familiar theme. The Lord tests the hearts of man. Psalm 26, verse 2, David invites the search. Saying, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Psalm 139, verse 23. He says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Unlike Adam trying to hide in the garden, David is saying, Search me thoroughly, Father. If there's sin... If there's pretense, if there are problems in me that I'm not even aware of, find them, Lord. Illuminate them. Test my heart. Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now, you Bible students have heard many of these verses before. This whole idea of God testing the heart. But what does it truly mean? What does it mean to say the Lord tests the heart? The heart. It's the next step. It's the next step. It's pushing things a little bit further. It's going beyond humility to a place of suffering, of pain, of struggle. The Lord testing the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses speaking to the people says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And I'm truly realizing there are two processes here. There's the humbling process, but there's also the testing process. And oftentimes the humbling process comes first, and then the testing process comes, which is even more difficult than walking that path of humiliation. The testing process hurts. Now we're coming to it here. For the Lord to test the heart is a process that goes beyond just humility. But what does it mean, truly? I'm familiar with several different heart tests. I've had a few. It's been a couple of years, praise the Lord. But back a couple, three years ago, I had a couple of challenges um, with this whole heart thing and my heart doing some weird stuff, still unexplainable things. But there were three tests that I remember vividly that I was given by the doctors at the time. The first was the electrocardiogram, the EKG. You're all probably familiar with that. They stick a bunch of stickers on your chest and different spots in your legs and arms and the stuff doesn't come off for about seven weeks. But they put that on you 
And then they do an electric test just to see how your heart's beating, how things are working. Well, that's not real invasive, just stickers, right? Then I had a test called the cardiac cath. This one's more invasive. This one is uncomfortable. This one is where they run a tiny catheter. They run it, uh, sticking it into the femoral artery near the groin. They cut in, put it in, and then they begin to run it all the way up the femoral artery, all the way into the heart. And you're awake for this procedure. This very uncomfortable, not painful, but uncomfortable. It just feels, you don't normally think about what it would feel like to have more tubes inside of your veins running through. It feels really weird. And, and I had this done twice. And I'm lying there on the table. I remember looking over and I'm, I'm a little bit dazed because they'd given me morphine, so I was happy to be there. And, <laughs> and they run this thing up and I look over on the monitor and there is my heart on a TV monitor. I'm like, wow. That's cool. Can I get an 8x10 glossy doc? You know? And they're looking at this thing. Now the downside for this procedure is after they're done, they put a plug there and you have to lie still for six to eight hours lest the plug pops loose and you bleed out because it's your femoral artery. <laughs> so I'm lying there going... Can I have a sip of juice? The third test was uh, after the fact, a follow-up test, the echocardiogram. Now, this one's my favorite because they put you in a dark room and they lay you down on the table and they've got the... uh, Electrocardi- the echocardiogram person who, who does these things. It's, it's an ultrasound, really, of the heart. And they sit there behind the screen, and they're running the stuff on your chest, and you're just lying there, you know, and, and they're not talking to you. They're just breathing. <laughs> and they having to remind me to breathe. And I remember lying there in that dark room. And by the way, the only time I've been alone with a woman other than my wife since I, since I can remember... It's a little uncomfortable. Like, do we have a light? <laughs> Are you looking at my soul? No. <laughs> These tests are all there to see if there are problems in the heart. Testing the heart. But here's the thing. When the Lord tests the heart, He already knows there are problems there. The Lord doesn't use an electrocardiogram or a cardiac cath or an echocardiogram to see if there may perhaps be sin in your heart. There's already sin in your heart. He knows it and you know it. We all know. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? John chapter 2 verse 24, and I've always loved this verse, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what's the point? The point is that God doesn't test the heart in terms of looking around, poking around, seeing what might be in there. When David says, search my heart, the assumption is not that God's going to go, oh, okay, well, let's see what we can find out here. No. No. Testing the heart is a completely different thing. When God tests the heart, it is far more invasive than that. He's not testing to see what's in there, the sin that he already knows about. He's, listen, he's, listen, he's testing the heart through hardship to make it stronger. The word test there, in verse 3, the Lord tests hearts. The word test is behan in the Hebrew, and it means to examine and prove by trial. 
to prove by trial, to take into hardship, literally, to, to bring into suffering, to bring into pain for the purpose, not of finding out what's there, but of making it stronger, of molding it, of trying the heart. That Hebrew word, refining pot, in some translations it literally says, the crucible. Well, what's a crucible? A crucible, uh, mitzreth in the Hebrew, is a vessel capable of enduring intense heat. A crucible is the vessel you would put silver or gold into to melt it down, literally to liquefy the metal, to make it more valuable. In the same way that gold and silver are refined by fire, verse 3 tells us, The Lord refines the heart. And we see it exemplified in in Israel, in the Jewish people. Isaiah 48 verse 10, speaking of their Babylonian exile, says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. When God tests the heart, that's what we're talking about. The furnace of affliction. Be careful when you say, Oh Lord, search and test my heart. Because you're asking to be taken into the furnace. That's what the testing of the heart is about. But what does it mean there? Isaiah 48 verse 10, interesting, he says, I have refined you but not as silver. What does that mean? Probably that even though a certain amount of refinement happened to Israel in their exile... They were not completely purified. They weren't finished. They weren't like pure silver that comes through the fire after their exile. More purification was going to have to take place for them. Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 says, Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. There's more to come, Israel. There's more refinement, more suffering, more hardship to come. Why, Lord? That you might be purified. Zechariah 13, verse 8, you may be familiar with this, tells us it will come about in all the land that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, and the third part will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And all indication is that by the time all things are said and done, the tribulation is complete, one-third of the Jewish people will have survived and will have faith in Jesus. Does that mean that God's going to wipe out two-thirds? It means that two-thirds will reject refinement. It means only one-third will say, Purify me, Lord. I want to call you my Lord and my God. Now some would say, and many Jewish people have said, that's harsh. (laughs) Do we realize, think about this, do we really understand what it takes to get a heart pure enough for God. I'm not sure that I completely do. His stated goal in your life, in my life, is absolute, total, unqualified purification. And when we sing songs like, Purify me, Lord, to be pure enough for God, it's beyond our understanding. 
Now, I've said this many times. You've heard it, perhaps from other pastors, that God is more concerned with my eternal condition than with my temporary comfort. Like the doctor putting the cardiac cath up the artery, he's not worried about whether or not it's painful or uncomfortable. He's worried about keeping you alive. And with the Lord, it's not so much worrying about, boy, yeah, this life is hard. This life is a struggle. This life is painful. I get that, the Lord would say. And He has compassion for it. In fact, that's why Jesus did so much healing when He was here the first time. Because He does have compassion for our pain and sorrow and sickness and maladies. But He's saying, do you understand there's something far more critical than how you're feeling right now? Something vastly more important than the pains and the aches and the sorrows of this short life? We see the immediate moment, don't we? We see today. Perhaps we look into tomorrow. We guess about next month. And we ask questions. How can I stay with this any longer? And the Lord says, I'm working on you. I am doing something in you. He sees the big picture. God's looking at eternity. Your heart in eternity. And so if you're in the crucible, which I know many of you are here this morning, if you are in that refining pot, understand God is not looking at you dispassionately and just saying, get over it. He's saying, I know it hurts. I know it's painful. I know where you are. But you need to understand what I'm doing. I'm testing. I'm proving. I am refining your heart. He's not just trying to wipe out little impurities here or there. He uses serious trials to produce absolute Purity. Well, didn't Jesus make us pure? Yeah, of course He did. Which gives God the freedom then to move in and begin to work in our hearts. And to truly alter us in how we think and how we perceive. I ran into Shelby at Starbucks on Friday. Shelby, many of you know, had back surgery. and She was sitting there, just happy to be out of the house and away from Pat. And, uh, no, and she had her computer open and she saw me so I sat down and we, and we began talking for a few minutes and um, she may have to have back surgery again because the, the uh, metal literally that they put in there is, is bumping up against the nerves and it's causing numbness in the leg and pain in the other one and, and they're thinking well maybe we, you know, we should have put a, a little barrier in there should have? <laughs> I'm thinking I think that's something they might have wanted to think through the first time, but anyway. And we were talking about this, and, and it was it was funny, because if you know Shelby at all, she's just got this really bright personality, and, and she just kept saying, yeah, I'm like, what's up, Lord? <laughs> and the way that she can do it, what's up, Lord? She said that like three or four times. Yeah, I'm lying there this morning, shooting paper and down my leg, and I just said, Lord, what's up? And I love that about her because she's asking <laughs> she's asking the right person. She's not complaining. I've never known her really to be a complainer. But she's asking the right person. She's saying, Lord, what are you doing? And it's the right question. But understand our purification, our sanctification as God's children goes further than humility. It takes us into the realm of trials by fire. And let me tell you something I said Wednesday night. You are not alone in it. That's Satan's attempt, if he can isolate you, 
and say, you're the only person ever to have felt this way, or you're the only person at your church who feels this way, or the only person in your circle of friends that feels this way, then he's got you. That's what Satan wants to do. The Lord would say to you, no. You are part of a community of people that I am refining. We look at one another and we say, well, I don't see pain and suffering in him. I don't see it in her. They can't possibly be going through what I'm going through. They may not be going through the exact same thing, but I guarantee you they're going through something. And God is working with each of us at different stages of our faith. So avoid comparison and understand He's at work. And He's at work as much as you are allowing Him to be at work. Sometimes those who suffer the most. If you ask the question, why do some of the most faithful people seem to have the most suffering? Because they're the most open to the work of the Lord. Because they're the ones saying, Lord, whatever you have to do. Whereas there are others who are saying, oh, not so much, that was enough. You know, stop there. The Lord goes, okay. Are you open to this, to this refinement, to the Lord testing the heart? John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, wonderful, and fire. Huh? The Holy Spirit and fire. Gang, and that wasn't just a nice Pentecostal logo that he was talking about. I will baptize you, Jesus would say later, with fire which has two connotations in Scripture. One is judgment. This entire world is going to be immersed in the judgment of Jesus Christ. But the other aspect of fire is purification. I will baptize you with my Spirit and with fires of trial and struggle for the sake of purification. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And fire purifies. The Apostle Peter recognizes, learned the hard way, this invasive, comprehensive, life-changing work of the Spirit of Christ. Peter got it. And so he begins to write, in fact... Keep your finger there in Proverbs 17 if you'd like to. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. It's right after James. Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter. Right before 1 John, which is before 2 John. 1 Peter chapter 4. In fact, what's interesting in the letter of 1 Peter, I will encourage those of you who are in the midst of some kind of struggle, be it physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever, right now, to read the first letter of Peter because the focal point of Peter's letter is about suffering. Suffering and glory. Glory and suffering. And he talks about it over and over through the whole entire letter. But listen to where he starts to land. Chapter 4, verse 12. As we push this just a little bit further, five minutes, stay on the machine. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, 
keep on rejoicing. I want to read that again. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In the same way that humility comes before honor, suffering comes before glory. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering and glory go hand in hand. You don't really have one without the other, not in the truest sense. This is the fundamental foundational doctrine for the follower of Jesus that there is suffering that precedes glory and the degree to which you suffer will be equal to the degree to which you are honored, glorified by the Lord. Which means for those of you who are really, really going through the throes of it right now, you have a great glory coming. Hallelujah! That God counts you worthy for the kind of suffering that you're dealing with right now? Well, I don't want glory, some may say. I just want to be there. That's all I want. I just want to be, I don't, I don't want to be honored and glorified. I just, I just want to be there. Same thing. Same thing. To be there is to be wrapped in His glory. You see, here's the thing. It is not my glory God is concerned with bringing out in me. It's His glory. To be in His presence, to be surrounded by, immersed, submerged, completely overwhelmed by His glory. That's His purpose. My suffering is for the sake of His glory being poured out. Note that in verse 13 again. The degree to which, uh, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, not yours, His, you may rejoice with exultation. This has never been about your glory. And when we say, my humility results in honor, it's His honor. Which is as simple as as a father looking at a child and saying, I am so proud of you. (laughs) I loved hearing that from my dad. More than anything else he said to me when he said that sentence, that just filled me up. I want to hear that from my Heavenly Father. Son, I'm proud of you. Daughter, I am proud of you. But it's His honor. And in this case, it's His glory we're talking about. I mentioned Israel's fiery trials in their Babylonian exile earlier. In Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. But listen to the next verse. Isaiah 48, verse 11, For my own sake... For my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Israel, I am refining you not because you're so special, but for my sake. Because I said I would. Because I made promises to you. Because I called you my people. Therefore, I have to refine you. That my glory can be seen in and among you. But he says, my glory I will not give to another. But something changed. Something in that changed. Oh, God still is ultimately the only one to be glorified. But something changed in that 
because of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 4.14, Peter says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He has just given His glory to another. His Spirit of glory now rests on you if you are suffering like Jesus. God sharing His glory. Not in terms of you being worshipped or honored like He is, but in terms again of surrounding you, of surrounding me with the very presence of His glorious Spirit. And it doesn't just happen. I remember as a youth pastor myself looking at, at these high school kids and they just wanted to be in the presence of God. And I remember hearing kids say, I just want to be in His presence. We even sing the song, In Your Presence. When we sing that, when those kids asked for it, they were asking for suffering. Because to be in the presence of the glorious Spirit of God, you've got to go first into the refining pot. Into the crucible. To be surrounded by His glory. One of the people... Well, there are two in my life who I saw most... If you could see light surrounding someone, I would say it was around these two people. The first was my grandmother, Sybil Smith, who was paralyzed for the last 16 years of her life. And I saw the glory of God resting on her. This is a woman who loved the Lord, wanted to know Him more, gave her life to Him, and He took it, and she went into the crucible. And I don't know that I've seen a more joyous face until, um, and suddenly his name is escaping me. Stuart Corey? Yes. Thank you. Stuart Corey. Those of you who know Stu Corey passed away. Uh, Stuart, after his biking accident up in Whistler, paralyzed himself from the neck down. I went with Les a couple of times to visit with Stuart. This guy was in the holy place. It's the only way I can describe it. Machines and stuff, you know, wires, things, tubes, laying there in, in a bed, but talking to Les and I, and and I just sat there going. And it was really it was painful to to be there because that was the first time I think I began to realize if I'm asking for the presence of God in my life, this may be where I end up. This may be it. Stuart was able to say in that position that he was closer to God than he had ever been in his entire life. The crucible. God sharing His glory. Now, now understand. And if you brought a friend for the first time who's not a Christian, maybe this wasn't the best morning, but that's okay. Hey, you know what? We gotta, we've got to understand what the truth is. But you need to get this, and this is so important, because it is completely upside down in our world. The world tells us the absence of suffering brings glory. That's glory. That's the good life, you know? Rest, relaxation, beach houses and luxury. That's it. Strive for that. Put away your money for it. Eventually you're going to get to that point where life can just be glorious. And, and the world's definition for glorious is when all is right and perfect and peaceful and and wonderful. The Word tells us, not 
that the absence of suffering brings glory, but the presence of suffering brings glory. It's the presence of suffering that brings His glory, the Spirit of glory, resting on you. That glory, how does it come? It comes through suffering. But here's how it works. Here's how it works. God does not replace, listen, He does not replace suffering with glory. He transforms suffering into glory. God does not replace suffering with glory. He transforms suffering into glory. And Jesus explains this beautifully. Turn back to John chapter 16. Back to the left. John chapter 16. A few hours preceding His greatest suffering, Jesus shared this. Explained exactly what I'm saying here. The transformation of suffering into glory. John chapter 16, verse 19. The apostles are a little confused here. Okay. If you know the book of John at all, you know 14, 15, and 16 are Thursday night at the Last Supper. And he's already been sharing several things to him in there. These are serious things about him leaving and about him sending his spirit in, in, in his place, about his absence and about what he's about to suffer. And the apostles, I mean, in, in three years of ministry, this is the most intense it has ever gotten. And they're confused. And so, verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said, in a little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but, watch this, but your grief will be turned into joy. I'm not going to replace your grief with joy. Your grief is going to be turned into joy. And that's exactly what happened. Think about this. That after the crucifixion, when the joy would come, when they saw Jesus again, they would still never forget the crucifixion. The grief didn't just dissipate and disappear. What they saw, their experience of Jesus on the cross would never leave them. In fact, Jesus doesn't want it to. We take communion every week for that very reason, that the thought of Jesus on the cross, the remembrance of that awful, painful sacrifice, would never leave us. But it turns into glory. It turns into joy. It shifts. The sorrow of the cross was turned into a substantive glory when the boys saw Jesus alive again. See, it's not replacement. And I don't, are you getting this? It's not just that suddenly we get to forget all the pain, it just goes away. It's that the pain, suddenly now the purpose of it settles in us. And there's joy there, and there's glory there. And though we may not forget, yet we walk in a new place that's better. That now that we're in this new place, when we look back to the old, we say, I would rather have gone through that and be here than be back where I was before. Suffering turned into glory. Jesus goes on to give 
what I think is a great example of exactly what he's talking about in verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Suffering turns into joy. Pain turning into glory. What what do we say when a woman says she's pregnant? Oh, no. (laughs) You're pregnant? Oh, the pain, the agony, the horror. You're going to be vomitously sick for months. You know that, don't you? Your body's going to morph and change until you look like an Oompa Loompa. Do you get that? It's going to be terrible. And it's just going to get worse. The closer you get, the more you're going to be racked with pain. Shooting through your body. Just going to continue coming. And then after the baby comes, you'll never get your life back. (laughs) Do we send sympathy cards? Sorry to hear you're pregnant. We'll be praying for you, you know? Do we we offer funeral wreaths? Here, you put this up and that with the the lilies and, and, you know? Do we wear black armbands? Yeah, she's pregnant. (sighs) Of course not. Why? Because in this instance, we get it, we understand, suffering turns to joy. And ladies, I mean, we laugh because we know. Ladies, those of you, if you've given birth, you know. You remember. If you stop and think about it, oh boy, yeah, that was... I've told you before, I, Cheryl, um, our, our first son, Corey, was born natural childbirth, which as Bill Cosby says, means the mother cannot have any drugs. The father can have all he wants. <laughs> but you know that. You remember that. That's part of the deal. You recognize that. But from here to here, you say, worth it. Suffering turned into joy. Now, when we understand this, When we get what Jesus is saying here, even in our confused human minds, we can begin to understand that the very thing that causes my pain, my sorrow, my discomfort, or my struggle, God wants to turn into joy. The source of your pain, God would turn to joy. It might be a tough marriage. I'll tell you one of the tragedies of divorce is the couple didn't go just five more minutes. Staying with it. And those of you who have had difficult marriages and painful seasons in your marriage, but you stayed with it and gave it to the Lord, can look back and go, oh, that was an ugly season, but you know what? Better now. It's better now. It could be difficulty with children. Some of you parents maybe racking your brains trying to figure out what to do with your kids. It could be a medical decision or a medical situation. Some physiological problem that you have dealt with and many of you have dealt with and I know for a long time. It could be a financial struggle. It might just be that life in general has got you completely overwhelmed. What this is telling us back in in Proverbs 17, the Lord is testing the heart. 
The Lord is proving the heart. The Lord is refining you in ways that you can't even imagine, even as we talk about it. The glory that comes out of the suffering, the suffering that has turned into glory, when we get there, when we reach the other side of it, and I tell you, those of you who suffer most in this fellowship, God must be very pleased with you. He must love you an awful lot to take you into this place knowing where He wants to bring you. I mean, the real tragedy is someone who is completely untouched by anything, just bopping through life. (laughs) It's cool. That's the person that I'd say, is God doing anything with them? Do they even want the glory that He offers? Whatever your struggle is, when you turn it over to Jesus, that very thing that causes your suffering, He turns into joy. And I think if we got that, we wouldn't try so hard to alleviate our suffering. I think we understood that if we truly knew the painful places of our lives were going to result in unspeakable joy, the very presence of the Spirit of glory, we might just stay with them. A few more minutes. We might just stick it out just a little bit longer. When it's painful, we might push a little more. This is not just talking about glory then. It's talking about glory right now. Back in 1 Peter 4.14, Peter says, the Spirit of glory rests on you now. Jesus says, back in John 16, verse 22, He concludes this whole thing saying, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. To be there in that moment with the apostles, not knowing what was about to come, even though Jesus had told them, He says it's going to get hard, boys. It's going to be worse in the next few hours than it has ever been in your lives. Stay with it. I'll see you Sunday. And when I see you, the whole thing all of the grief, all the pain, all the tears and the sorrow of the next few days. Can you imagine? Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew the whole thing would be flipped upside down and that sorrow would just explode in a joy inexpressible that changed every single one of their lives. Save Judas, but he wasn't even here by that point. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus understands. Who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. Jesus pushed through the pain. Just one more minute. Just a little longer. He stayed with the agony each and every moment on that cross. Why? The Hebrew writer tells us, for the joy He knew was coming. He stayed with the pain. Yeah, some might say, I get that. But Jesus was only on the cross six hours. And I've been in physical pain in my life, someone might say, for years. Isaiah 53, verse 3, says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It wasn't six hours for Jesus. Okay, so you're saying He endured it for 33 years. No. It wasn't 33 years for Jesus. 
it was much longer. Revelation 13.8 tells us He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus knew the pain He would face ever since creation. You think you've had it hard for a long time? God at least blesses us with the lack of foreknowledge. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what kind of pain we might face in the future. Jesus knew it from day one. He knew how hard it was going to be. He had to carry that pain, that sorrow, that struggle throughout all of creation. And every single time sin happened, Jesus knew it would be pinned on Him. Try wearing that. He gets it. He completely understands. If you've ever thought He doesn't understand the pain I'm in, He experienced pain that you will never understand. Why? So that your pain could be turned into joy. So that my sorrow could be in the crucible changed into, turned into glory. 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says, In this, that is our coming salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is Proverbs 17, verse 3. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord, oh the Lord, He refines the heart. We don't really know what we need, do we? I was talking with Jeff on Friday and, and Steve and Don, we were having coffee together and talking a little bit about benevolence ministry. And benevolence is tough, and I'll tell you why. Someone says, I just need help paying my mortgage. Maybe not. Someone says, I, I just need a job. Maybe you don't. Well, I I just need help out of this suffering. Maybe you don't. The hardest thing in benevolence and in deciding what to give is sometimes we write a check for someone and hand it to them and it lists their suffering just long enough for them to miss what God is doing. I'm not saying the church doesn't have a responsibility to care for each other. We do. But it is a hard call. Are you God? Can you discern what people need? Can you discern when it's best to alleviate pain rather than to allow someone to sit in the struggle? Maybe losing a house is exactly what God is doing. I was praying with a friend last week. I won't say who, but he was just talking about, you know, he has a relative who, who's looking for work. And he said, I don't know if I should pray for this person to get a job. Or pray that they don't get a job so they have to struggle more so that they can come to faith in Jesus. Because suffering produces what God wants to produce in us. We, we don't know what we need. We're like the, the lame beggar in the street asking for alms when glory is available. I just need a few cents. And God's saying, you want a few cents or do you want my glory? The, the choice is up to you. Peter and John were going up to the temple. 
And they come to the beautiful gate at the hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And Acts chapter 3, verse 2 tells us a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now when he saw Peter and John going into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. I need a few cents, a dollar, you know, a shekel, whatever can you give to a poor beggar? He's asking. When Peter and John saw him, Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And the man began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting? A few cents. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk! It's a wonderful story. They grab the man by the hand, he stands up, and the rest of the chapter talks about him leaping and dancing and praising God in the temple. This same man who everyone had seen every day begging for a few cents now had legs. And now he's dancing around and he's praising the Lord. His pain, his sorrow was not satisfied, not alleviated by a few cents, but by complete healing. And it resulted in glory. When your circumstances are painful, when you are faced with suffering, listen, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk! Walk! Even if it's just a few more steps, even if it's just a little longer, stay with the sorrow. Stay with the pain. Because Jesus is turning it into glory. What a remarkable thing. The very thing causing your distress. He wants to give you glory. Now Father, this could be misunderstood. We so often misunderstand our pain. So many people who shake their fist at you rather than opening hands of praise to you to thank you for what you're doing. And Father, we have a fellowship where there are many people who are in pain right now. Physical pain, emotional pain, Father, spiritual pain. And Lord, we're pausing today just long enough to say perhaps, perhaps, it's You at work. And Lord, even if it isn't, even if our pain is a result of our sin, even if our pain is a result of something gone wrong in our bodies, even if our pain is not something that You caused, we are asking that it be something that You use. And we're praying, Father, that You would keep us in it as long as You need to to bring about Your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.